Good afternoon, everyone. Last week, I preached a message called Process-Oriented Evangelism, in which I talked about how Christians, we need to gain wisdom in relating to and evangelizing to the unchurched in a genuine, comprehensible, and engaging way. In Acts 15, 19 says, this is the uh, Apostle James speaking. He says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Everyone say, we should not make it difficult. You know, we should not make it difficult is different from we should make it easy. As Christians, when we share the gospel, we don't want to make it easy. But at the same time, as the Apostle James says here, we should not make it difficult. And when we get caught up in certain brainless habits, we end up making the gospel difficult for the unchurched to respond to. We make it unnecessarily difficult for those who may genuinely desire a personal relationship with God. Uh, Owen McManus said this, While many churches today do not perform their services in Latin, our language, style, music, and methods are pretty much Latin to the unchurched population. We have to examine and carefully consider whether the way we are doing uh, church, the way we are relating to the unchurched, the way we uh, yeah, relate to them when they come to church for the first time, when they join our community groups. We got to examine whether we are being understood. We got to speak simply, not with just Christian jargon. When you are with fellow mature believers, of course, you can use all the jargon you want. We impart wisdom among the mature. But for those who are unchurched, we got to speak the street vernacular. Amen? We got to learn how to speak like we're back on the streets. You know, Jesus, when he was on the earth, he spoke Aramaic. He spoke the language of the streets. Aramaic is a language that's very similar to Hebrew. He did not speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. Because those are the people that he was down with. He was a Galilean Jew. We got to know how to speak the language of the streets. And this is why Jesus was able to reach out and uh, connect with prostitutes and hustlers. You know, tax collectors, there's nothing but hustlers back then. <laughs> but the thing was, these prostitutes and hustlers, they understood Jesus. They weren't like, what? They understood what he was trying to say. But you know what? Most pastors today, they would not know how to talk to a prostitute without getting blank faces. We got to break out of our Christian cliches. And engage our minds and talk to people's hearts. I also talked about how in this postmodern age, we need to learn how to share the gospel in a more process-oriented manner. People are not going to repent and commit to Christ for the first time that you share the gospel with them using some booklet. Many people these days, especially those who are influential living in the big cities, they come to Christ via many decisions in a process and something I didn't mention last week is that the majority of the unchurched people that you reach out to are going to reject Christ. I don't mean to make it a damper, but I'm just repeating the words of Jesus. Matthew seven fourteen: the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
Not everyone is going to be clapping when you share the gospel with them or when you begin to engage them to bring them to Christ. But we evangelize anyway out of an overflow of faith and joy and because it is on the heart of God that we as Christians, we learn how to, we learn how to periodically leave behind the 99 to go after the one. And those who faithfully do that will find themselves bringing lost sheep home from time to time. So that was my message last week. Today, I'm going to talk about a hot topic that many pastors avoid. Where's my uh, clock? My count? All right. When did I start? 140? All right. So if I, if, I, if I go over an hour today, it's their fault, not mine. <laughs> um, they didn't give me a clock. All right. Is the PowerPoint ready? All right, I'm going to talk about a topic that most pastors avoid. That's homosexuality. I'm going to particularly talk about the great need for wisdom in the body of Christ toward how to relate to homosexuals, those who are unchurched, and also those who are Christians already, but may still be struggling in that area. And how we ought to publicly engage the issue as Christians in, in, in a secular media type of you know, venue. How we ought to publicly engage this issue. In America, this is a very big issue right now in American society, in the church. And many people are asking questions, but they are not finding uh, good discussion and answers. You know, without engaging this issue biblically and intelligibly, we're going to see Christians continue to slide toward one extreme, either moralism, legalism, Or toward relativism. You know, moralism says it's wrong. It's black and white. Stop doing it. Relativism says we're all God's children. It's all okay. If it works for you, it must be right to you. It must be right for you. This message today uh, is composed for Christians. Whether you are straight or whether you're struggling with homosexuality or you used to struggle with homosexuality, or you believe you are a homosexual, this is a sermon for followers of Christ. If you don't have Christ in your life yet, you may benefit from hearing it, but there will be things that you will probably disagree with. That's because I've written this message for imparting wisdom to Christians. So today we're going to start with some scripture. We're going to look at some interpretations of scripture that are in favor of, of a pro-homosexual view, and then we'll look at some that are more historically held. Uh, Let's put up the slides up. First, we're going to look at, uh, quickly, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're not familiar with this, you can find it in Genesis chapter 19. Sodom and Gomorrah. It might be a little bit small to see, so I will summarize here. Two angels of the Lord are sent into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because God overhears that these twin cities are very wicked. And when these men entered the city, they stayed with the cousin of Abraham. His name was Lot. And the Bible says in Genesis 19.4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, 
Where are the men you who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And we may know them. Go to the next slide. The Hebrew word to know, yada, can be translated to get acquainted with, to, to know someone. And it can also mean to have sexual intercourse with. Go to the next slide. So this is a more pro-homosexual interpretation of Genesis 19. Can you guys read that? Is that too small? You can kind of read it? I'm sorry, I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, the poor homosexual interpretation says that the men of Sodom simply wanted to get acquainted with the visitors. They wanted to meet them. Who are these new folks that you're hosting, Lot? And they wanted to either show hospitality or they wanted to interrogate them to make sure they weren't spies. So they just wanted to get acquainted with the two visitors. And they would argue also that the verb yada appears 934 times in the Old Testament. And only 12 times does it mean to have sex. So the majority of the time it means to get acquainted with. So that's the way we ought to read that passage. Let's go to the next passage. The uh, the Levitical law. There are certain uh, laws that are laid out in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. Where it makes it really clear that homosexuality is a sin. Here's a couple of them. Uh, Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13. If a male lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So in the Old Testament... If you were found to have homosexual relations and you were caught in the act, you were uh, God commanded that they be both immediately stoned to death. Let's go to the next one. Here's a pro-homosexual interpretation of the Levitical law. First, they say that these laws only apply to the priests and toward the Jewish ritual purity. They don't; they no longer apply to us. These are religious prohibitions, not moral prohibitions. And they were merely for the Old Testament theocracy of the Jews, the Jewish government, and are not relevant for today. For example, eating seafood and shrimp and pork was forbidden by God. Those laws no longer apply to us Gentiles today. In the same way, eating seafood or wearing mixed fabrics, those were at once forbidden. So were these homosexual relations. But for today... It's no longer relevant because we don't live under, under an Old Testament theocracy. And then there is a version of the Bible called a QJB. You may have never heard of this version of the Bible. I'm about to explain what it is. But the QJB interprets this text as mean, meaning that it's actually a prohibition of pagan idol worship. Now, what is the QJB? Let's look at the QJB. QJB is the Queen James Bible. <laughs> you can find it online. Uh, this is a... It's not really a, uh, a legitimate version of the Bible, but it is a version of the Bible that reinterprets historically... Uh, reinterprets the plain reading of Scripture, and they put the pro-homosexual interpretations into the text so that you can understand it from that viewpoint. 
So it is the King James Bible edited to prevent homophobic misinterpretation. Okay, so it's got a good heart behind it. Let's keep going. So the Queen James Bible interprets the Levitical passages like this. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind in the temple of Molech. It is an abomination. Um, and chapter 20, verse 13. If a man also lie with mankind in the temple of Molech. So they add this phrase in the temple of Molech, which is not in the original text, in order to help you so that you do not misinterpret this to mean that the Bible is saying homosexuality is a sin. So they're, they're just adding that to help you to prevent the kind of violence on homosexuals, the homophobia that a lot of uh, Christians in America are just filled with. All right, let's keep going. In the temple of Molech, uh, the Hebrew word to'eba, which is translated abomination, uh, is the meaning behind abomination is to be ritually unclean. So when God says it is an abomination, he is simply saying that this type of sex in idol pagan worship is an abomination. It's a ritually unclean thing to God. Homosexual behavior would only have been prohibited when associated with pagan rituals. All right, let's go to the next text. Let's go to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. In the NIV, it says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's see what the Queen, Queen James Bible, how they interpret this. This is the King James, just re-edited. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And this is where they change the, they edit the text. Nor the morally weak, nor promiscuous, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So the Queen James Bible interprets this phrase in the Greek. There's actually two Greek words there. In the ESV, they just merge it into one uh, meaning. But the NIV has done a, a more accurate job in reflecting the two Greek words that are evident there. Now, the Queen James Bible interprets those two words to mean morally weak and promiscuous. Let's keep going. Uh, Queen James Bible, the pro-homosexual interpretation will say, this refers to general immoral behavior rather than homosexual practice. This also speaks against promiscuity and prostitution, not against loving, committed, gay relationships. All right, let's keep going. All right, so what is the Christian biblical response to some of these interpretations? Now, there's a lot of different uh, pro-homosexual interpretations of the Bible. What is the Christian biblical historically held view of these passages? Let's go. Let's go to Psalm and Gomorrah. Biblical commentators, commentators would argue that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not a lack of hospitality or, or they were not just looking to interrogate or get acquainted with these visitors. Historically, church leaders have translated the verb in Genesis 19.5, yada, to mean to have sex. Uh, if 
the men of Sodom were simply trying to get acquainted with the visitors, why would Lot be anxious? And out of that anxiety, he does something interesting. He offers his two virgin daughters to the men that are waiting outside. Right? Why would he offer his virgin daughters that the whole town knew if these people were just trying to get to know the visitors? All right. And so you can kind of see that there were these sexual connotations. These people were out to know, to have sex with the two visitors that were visiting Solomon and Gomorrah. And there's also New Testament support in Jude chapter 1 verse 7. Let's go to Jude. It says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the New Testament interprets the Sodom and Gomorrah event clearly as sexual immorality. The Greek word there for unnatural desire is they were going after strange flesh which has the implication of either bestiality or homosexuality. Let's go to the next. The Levitical law. What are some of the more Christian views of the Levitical law? Well, the Levitical law, the plain reading of the text is probably the meaning of the text. That's what a lot of Christians will simply argue. Uh, God is prohibiting homosexual acts. He is clearly condemning it as sin. And saying that to him, this is an abomination. Why is it an abomination? Because when God created man, he created them male and female. It is in his design. It is God's idea and design to create mankind as male and female. Sexual relations were to be between a male and female. If you look at it biologically, you can tell the design is there. And what, and what has happened is there's an attack on God's design. Anytime that you attack God's design, you're going to have, you're going to have sin. You're going to have death. Wait, wait, wait. Hold it. No, I'm not done yet. Abomination. The Hebrew word to'eba means a, a ritual uncleanliness related to pagan idolatry. It's one of the definitions. However, it is also used in scripture to denote something that is morally or ethically repugnant, disgusting to God in his sight. And so morally, God is saying these homosexual acts are an abomination. They are repulsive to him in his sight. Let's go to the next one. New Testament. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes. In the NIV, there's the word male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. There are two Greek words here. Let's go to the first Greek word, malakos. This Greek word refers to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship or a homosexual act. Literally, it means soft. But in a negative metaphor, it was used to, uh, to talk in a derogatory way toward men that were effeminate, that were very feminine. Uh, the word was also used to refer to a boy that certain uh, wealthy uh, Romans kept around for sexual relations. And, it, and the word malakos was also used to refer to male prostitutes. The Queen James Bible tried to translate it as morally weak. 
But there are not many uh, grounds uh, for them to translate it that way because that was not the way that the word was known in the Roman Empire. Let's go to the next word. Arsenokoites. Okay, this refers to the active partner in a homosexual act. Uh, and it can also mean adulterous homosexual relations or acts. Uh, and so in the ESV, what you will notice is it just summarizes it as, you know, those who practice homosexuality. But they're taking the two Greek words, passive uh, person in the homosexual act and the active person in the homosexual act. They're just putting it together and saying any man who, uh, who commits homosexual acts, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the more accurate translation will reflect both meanings. Queen James Bible tries to translate this word, this Greek word, as promiscuous. But once again, uh, you're not going to have a good usage of this word uh, in the Greek uh, to, to back up the meaning promiscuous. All right, what's the next slide? Okay. All right, uh, we'll get to that later. I want you to mute it, mute it for now. Can you mute it? All right. You know, uh, some people have even tried to use the David and Jonathan story. If you look through 1 Samuel, you'll notice uh, two friends, David and Jonathan, who are very, very close. They're very touchy and feely, if you read the text. And some people try to argue that this is an example of a homosexual relationship going on. I can assure you that if you look at the text... There is no homosexuality there. This is simply an example of what we call a bromance. <laughs> All right. These guys were just simply really, really into each other as friends. Now, I know I went through some of these texts quickly. I'd encourage you to go t- uh, study it on your own. Look them up. And there is plenty of texts that uh, make it clear that homosexual lust and homosexual acts is sin. Okay, so I'm going to start there. I'm going to start with scripture. The Bible is very clear on that. And so your starting point is very important. If your starting point is your relationship with a, with a uh, gay friend that you had growing up, or a gay cousin or a lesbian cousin that you know, if your starting point is there, you're not going to have clarity on how to actually relate to them with biblical wisdom. Your starting place needs to be from a place of having a high view of scripture. If you're okay with the Queen James Bible editing the Bible and editing it in such a way to say what it does not say, then you don't have a high view of scripture. You know, to, to Christians, and this is the holy Word of God. This is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, the first five books of the Bible, you know, it's kind of like unclear and vague how it was written down. How did Moses know all that information about Abraham's life when Moses wasn't there? How would this have been written down? This is unreliable. We should not trust such ancient texts. But you have to be careful. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was the son of God. And what you will notice about Jesus during the, throughout the Gospels is, Jesus meditates upon the first five books of the Bible, which are known as the Pentateuch, the Mosaic Law. The first five books of the Bible are historically believed that Moses 
was inspired by the Holy Spirit to help write it, perhaps through various sources, but he wrote it down. And Jesus read the Old Testament, the Mosaic law. He read the Psalms and many things, instances and details in his gospel, in his ministry was actually prophesied about in the Psalms. And so if you think all oh, these things are just, you know, music lyrics that are not reliable, you're wrong. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the son of God. And the son of God read these texts as being the very word of God. You have to take that seriously. When Jesus read Genesis, he read Adam and Eve as literal people. Now, I'm not, I know I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not tackling the evolution issue here today. All right? Because in America, man, you got some funky views out there. Uh, you have the you know, Darwin, Dar, people who subscribe to more Darwinian theories. And then you got all these in-between theories. But for me, I'm a plain and simple guy. And Bible, Bible says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. I believe it happened just like that. And when God, and the Bible says God created Adam and Eve. And these, 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 this Adam and Eve, they, they said things like, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I believe it happened just like that. And I believe Jesus also read Genesis just like that. Referring to Adam and Eve as literal people. Not as some kind of strange, legendary, you know, symbolic figures that were actually symbolism for some big bang that actually took place and people evolved. Anyway. All right. So homosexual acts, the Bible is clear that this is sin. Homosexuals then have a responsibility to repent. So if you have committed these sins and you've acted out these desires that's sin and there is a responsibility for you to repent if you are lusting after them or you are looking at a lot of different pornography that continues to feed this desire that lust homosexual lust is sin you need to repent there's a responsibility for you to repent but as christians we also have a responsibility a responsibility to reach out to those who are struggling with homosexuality, to reach out to them in love. They have a responsibility to repent, but we have a responsibility to love them and to relate to them in grace and in truth. To bring healing, healing and freedom. To look with hope. You know, homosexuality, homosexual acts, they are sin. But you know what else is sin? Homophobia is also a sin. So throw up my slide here. You know, these slides are from a class uh, that I took. We're going to skip the one about denominations. You guys can research your own research on which denominations support gay or nation, all that stuff. Uh, let's look at this. Homophobia. Homophobia encompasses a range of negative attitudes and feelings toward homosexuality or people who are identified or perceived as being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. It can be expressed as antipathy, contempt, prejudice, aversion, or hatred. And it may be based on irrational fear and is sometimes related to religious beliefs. All right, look, so you see here, it's a 
somebody holding up a sign, homosexuals are possessed by demons. All right? And so this is a, a homophobia exists in the Christian church because this issue has not been intelligibly engaged. And so children, they learn how to view homosexuals just by watching media or by watching their parents. And what the previous generation has not had to deal with as engagingly, we need to deal with today. Let's, let's uh, go to the next slide. Uh, this is a picture of a young man. And there's a lot of stories like this in America. You see his picture on the left. He looks like just a regular young man. And on the right, he's just been brutally beaten. The United States... Uh, Bureau, uh, the FBI statistics say that 19.3% of hate crimes in America were motivated by a sexual orientation bias, meaning that some person was walking down the street and they may be homosexual or they may not even be homosexual, but they were perceived as being homosexual and random acts of violence or premeditated acts of violence were taking place toward people just because of their sexual orientation. One out of five hate crimes, one out of five violent hate crimes in the United States. I think the majority are actually racial. So racism is still an issue. But today we're going to talk about homosexuals. One out of five. Go to the next slide. Okay, stop that. Mute that. That's for later. All right. Homophobia. This is the sin of the church. Phobia, meaning fear. Homo means homosexual. Having an irrational fear toward homosexuals. Now, this homophobia can result in two kind of responses. Either avoidance, we treat those in the homosexual community like lepers, unclean, don't come to our church. What? You're gay? I hate you. There's either avoidance or, as you saw in the FBI stats, violence. Especially in America. America's full of violence. Christian families have been known to disown their children when they come out of the closet. Either out of shame or anger. They will kick their children out of the house just because they profess to be gay. You know, this is not a good, mature, and loving, Christ-like response to those who struggle with homosexuality. We must not be controlled by fear, but by faith. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. And if we are a people filled with the perfect love of God, we should have no fear of homosexuals. What, do we think that we we don't contract a disease or something like that? That's what people used to believe in the 80s. If we love homosexuals with God's love, we should not be afraid of them. You know, personally, I never really had a fear a homophobia, or a homo-hostility toward homosexuals. That's because I grew up in the city of Philadelphia. 
One thing you know about Philadelphia is it has one of the biggest population of homosexuals in the entire nation. There was a movie based on it with Denzel Washington called Philadelphia. (laughs) I didn't really know this until I got to high school and I I realized at my high school there was a very large uh, gay, uh, bisexual, lesbian, transgender group. You know, and, and they were actually quite compassionate people. Uh, I remember when I used to work as a lifeguard. I have a funny story of a personal trainer at the gym, at the condominium that I was working at. He became a close friend to mine. He was an African-American gentleman. And he was, you know, I thought he was, you know, a dude. I thought he was just, you know, a straight guy. And he showed me pictures of uh, his supposed girlfriend and all these things. But there's a funny story that uh, one time he said, let's go out and hang out. And we went out and hang, to hang out. He took, he took me to the middle of Southern City. And he took me to a strange cafe with all this strange sexual paraphernalia. Like uh, se- sexual like uh, things. Okay. Anyway, it was, <laughs> I didn't feel safe. And then when I told him I like to leave... He was like, all right, well, let's go to the uh, bar across the street. And I was like, well, I can't drink. He's like, oh, that's okay. We can just go and dance. <clears throat> anyway, he took me to the bar. The bar was called Woody's. And it was a homosexual bar. It was a gay bar. Uh, fortunately, the bouncer at the door did not permit me to come in because I was not 21. And so, uh, you know, anyway, I drove him home later and, uh, and that was that. Uh, but I didn't have any like hatred toward him. I remember I told one of the other, uh, homosexual, uh, the other personal trainer at the condominium, it's a Puerto Rican guy. And when I told him and I was like, yeah, you know, I thought, I thought, you know, he was just, you know, I thought he was just gonna, we were gonna hang out and he took me to a gay bar. And then I remember the Puerto Rican guy, he responded with homophobia and a lot of hostility. And he said, what? I knew it. I knew that Ernest is gay. I hate him. I'm gonna kill him. And he, and, he, and he did the typical kind of hostile thing. And I said, calm down. Look, he didn't do nothing to me. Well, I still consider him a friend, but, I, you know, I just felt a little bit set up. I felt, I felt like he misled me. And he's like, man, I can't believe he did that to you, man. I'm going to beat him up. You want me to beat him up when I see him? I said, no, no, that's not necessary. <laughs> I remember when I got to college, I went to school in New York University. NYU has a very large gay population. In fact, I used to go to the gym, and, there, and, and a lot of the men who were very buff, I thought they were just buff. <clears throat> but in the West Village, you see a lot of buff men are at World's Gym, all right, and most of them are actually gay. Uh, you can't tell until you ask them to spot you. <laughs> and uh, they, get a bit, uh, they get a little bit touchy-feely as they... You know, hey, you got the wrong form. Hey, hey, bend your knees. Spread your arms. All right, just hold it right there. All right, and I'm going to come around you. Right, you got to put your weights here. All right. Even, even though they did things like that, you know, I did not have uh, homo hostility or phobia toward them. Uh, in fact, my sister will tell you a true story is that actually my freshman year at NYU, I, I was living at my sister's apartment and I was paying my own rent and we had a roommate and this roommate was a Korean girl studying from Korea, exchange student. And she was a self-proclaimed lesbian. And so she would have different girlfriends at different times during the year. And uh, some of these girlfriends would sleep over. 
And so yeah, that, that made it a little awkward, you know. I'll come home and they're eating ramen together and, and you know, I don't know what took place earlier, you know. But uh, even, though, even though I was living with, you know, and there are lesbian Korean girls, you know. Uh, I did not particularly judge her or feel hostility or anger toward her. I, I, I pray for her. I reached out to her in compassion. She wasn't having none of the gospel. So, you know, that was that. And, you know, as long as you pay your rent. <laughs> and we're good. We're good. She was a nice girl, though. She's real nice. Real nice girl. Uh, here at New Philly, we've had several men open up about homosexual struggles. And we even had a few that were actually engaged in trying to come out of the homosexual lifestyle. Uh, we've discipled them. We've loved them. And I believe that if we will relate to homosexuals in wisdom, with grace and truth, that we can see them transform. There is hope that they can uh, experience a new identity. But even if they don't change quickly, you know, I believe that God commands us to love them. Not to fear them. You see in John chapter 4, there's a story of the woman at the well. I think I covered this last week in my message on evangelism. And if you look at this story, the woman, she was the town um, prostitute, the town promiscuous girl. Okay, how's that? She was a town promiscuous girl. Everyone knew she had been with however many men. And the guy who she was with at that time was not her husband. Uh, she was a loose girl. And people looked down on her. She was a sinner. But Jesus reached out to her. Which tells me that if we are to manifest Jesus in this broken, fallen world today, we also need to reach out to the sinners of today. Those who are perceived as social outcasts. We must reach out to them with love. Jesus said, it's the sick who need a doctor. Although they are involved in lust and sexual immorality, you know, they are more responsive than we might think to the gospel. If you will reach them in love. And so let me just impart some wisdom in, in uh, relating to those who are struggling with homosexuality. And by the way, we got to stop using words like homo and gay in derogatory terms. Okay, if, you, if you're talking about gay as being happy, I'm gay today. All right, you can go ahead and use it all you want. <laughs> but most young men these days, they use that word in a derogatory sense. You know, if uh, some video game is not as cool as they thought, they'll be like, oh, this video game is gay. You know, or if they look at somebody and they can't play basketball right. Oh, that guy's gay. He's, he's just weak. You know, and we got to stop using it in these derogatory terms because it feeds this homophobia. Uh, this is very popular in sports, hip hop, even in the church. Actually, the church is very guilty of feeding the homophobia fire. So let me impart some wisdom in relating to homosexuals. The first bit of wisdom may sound familiar. Be process-oriented. Be process-oriented. Whether they are Christians or 
whether they're unchurched. We got to be more process oriented in relating to those struggling with homosexuality. We can't just smack them with the Bible. Look, look at Leviticus. It's plain. It's clear. It's a sin. Stop it. Okay. There may be a much deeper story than that. We need to be wise in sharing the truth with them. You know, statistics, some statistics show that a vast majority of those in the gay community were sexually abused when they were children. This is a known fact in some statistical campaigns. There's a story of abuse and trauma. And perhaps as children, they didn't know how to deal with that. You know, there's, there are stories of, of young men, even at our church, who were homosexually abused by other men, older men. But these men, while they're abusing and raping them as a child, as a child they're also using homophobic and homo-hostile rhetoric. Will sexually abuse them and then later hate them for, you enjoyed it, didn't you? That's because you're gay. You know, and this kind of, these kinds of stories, like, that's traumatic for any child to go through. And when these instances are not dealt with in a healthy manner, uh, what's the child to do? But start to maybe identify with some of these lies that they've been told. And that can eventually result in different manifestations when they become adults. There's a story behind it. So we got to be process-oriented. We can't just smack people with the Bible and tell them to change and repent right now. But we need to, we need to love them to a greater revelation of the truth. I, I overheard on the radio yesterday a poem by Emily Dickinson. Now, Emily Dickinson, they're not sure if she was a, a faithful Christian toward the end of her life, but she's a wonderful poet. And she wrote a poet, poem that said that when we share truth, we got to share truth with a slant, with a slant. Just like we explain what lightning is to children, we got to slowly gradually reveal truth to people or else the whole world will go blind. That's the gist of her poem. It's a beautiful poem. You should go read it somewhere. Uh, <laughs> Emily Dickinson. But there's, there's wisdom in her poem. We got to be process oriented. Truth is a powerful thing. You know, you, you, you ever wake up in the middle of the night, it's completely dark. And some knucklehead friend takes a flashlight and puts it in your eyes. I mean, no matter what kind of temperament you have, you're going to get angry. <laughs> Why? Because your, pupil, your pupils have become really small so that you can, you know, because of the darkness. And when you put that flashlight, no, it has become really big, I'm sorry, to bring in more light. And then you put that flashlight in their eyes, man, that hurts. It's painful. It's the same thing. When you, when you bring the biblical truth to people's lives. If they're, if they're in a place where it's dark and it's broken and depression, you don't just put the flashlight in their eyes of truth. Wake up right now! We've got we to learn to hear their story before they're going to hear what we have to say. Be process-oriented. Now, I do want to say one thing here. In interacting with and how, trying to help a couple of people who are trying to come out of a gay lifestyle, one thing you need to know about the gay lifestyle it is very dangerous. A lot of stereotypes are actually true. The gay lifestyle is very dangerous. For those who are practicing homosexuals, listen to me right now. Hear my warning. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 
the thing about uncontrolled homosexual activity is that sin is going to lead to death. It's going to lead to death very quickly. And so even if you're struggling with it, you need to stop. You need to try your best to get out of that lifestyle. Because people who are in, let me tell you, they're engaged in all kinds of dangerous behavior. Hooking up in ways that heterosexual promiscuous people will never. It's very dangerous, whether with disease and HIV or just violence. A lot of these men who are in the homosexual lifestyle, they'll go to a place like Thailand or Cambodia and they'll find other homosexuals that, that are looking for these kinds of hookups. Or even in Korea, there's a large, I don't want to get into it, but there's a large gay community here and they thrive, they prosper. And they, they hook up with each other. But it's very dangerous. And they, sometimes it will result in violence. There's, some of these guys will, are crazy. There's nothing um, restrict, restraining them, restraining their urges. So they'll go from a sexual urge to a violent urge. And they will beat the crap out of you. And then have sexual relations with you again. It's just twisted. It's just, it's just, a, it just it's a slippery slope. So I want to warn those who are living in a gay lifestyle, be careful. The wages of sin is death. Come out of there. It's very dangerous. Uh, another wisdom that I want to impart to you is, number two, have a holistic view toward repentance. Ha- have a holistic view toward repentance. A lot of times we think repentance is about getting, bringing the conviction about sin. I got to get them to see that this is wrong. So a person says, I don't think this is wrong. Well, let me show you in the Bible how this is wrong. Look at these Bible verses. Look at the Sodom and Gomorrah story. This is wrong. This is evil. This is an abomination to God. And I got to bring conviction to my friend. Therefore, they will repent. But like I said earlier, a good number of those who are struggling with homosexuality have a story of abuse at some point in their life. That means what they need is not just another beatdown of conviction. What they're looking for is healing and hope. And so the Bible says in Romans 2.4 that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. So a holistic view of repentance says that God brings conviction of sin with the fear of the Lord. Through the scriptures, through his presence. But a holistic view says God also brings repentance through his kindness. We have an example of this in John chapter 8. The woman caught in the act of adultery. The town elders or you know, the Jewish leaders in that town, they drag this woman half naked. And they throw her before Jesus and say, this woman was caught in adultery. Our law states that we are to stone her to death. What do you say, Jesus? And they did that to test Jesus, to try to catch him, whether he really obeys the word of God or not. But Jesus, you know... He's the son of God. He's very creative in his thinking. You try to trap him in a box and you find out, you look in that box, he's not even there, he's outside the box. (laughs) And Jesus said, all right, well, whoever is without sin, you cast the first stone. All right, I'm not going to prohibit you all from from obeying the law. Yeah, she does deserve to be stoned. All right, but with the guy without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And the Bible says one by one, they started dropping the stones. They walked away. And Jesus said, 
Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Jesus didn't say, hey, do you know the, the law says that what you did is, is wrong? You know, the, and she, she already got that. She was in a place of brokenness. And all God did was show him his rich kindness and grace and kind, his kindness of God led her to repentance. And we don't know the rest of her story, but I can say if I was in her shoes, that encounter would have transformed me permanently. But that's the kind of encounters that we as Christians, we need to give to those who are struggling with homosexuality. It's the kindness of God. We've got to have a holistic view toward repentance. Some people, you need, God will use your conviction. God will bring the word of God and bring conviction. But other people, especially those who have an abuse and traumatic story from their past, it will be the kindness of God that will lead them to genuine repentance. Another wisdom I want to impart is don't let people who are struggling with homosexuality place their identity in homosexuality. We as Christians, we're afraid, like, okay, we don't want to be politically incorrect, okay? And so if the person says, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, that's my identity, we're like, okay, all right, you can have it. All right, that's your identity. Even Christians who are in the church, they say, why won't you let me get ordained? This is who I am. This is who I am. Let me get ordained. And we, 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 all right, all right, okay, all right. You're very angry. All right, we just want to plead. We just we want to start any trouble. And we let them have this identity. But here's the thing. We cannot let people place their identity in a sexual orientation. It's complete deception. What we want to do is we want to point them to, an, to a new identity they have in Christ. Uh, if you look up Luke chapter 7, let's look up Luke chapter 7. Why don't we look at that one together? It's a story of a woman who lived a very sinful life. And she comes and she begins to wash the feet of Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verses 36. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter here. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I'm going to read the ESV. One of the Pharisees asked him, to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would have known what sort of, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, answering said to him, Simon, listen to me carefully. <laughs> Simon, I got something to say to you. He, he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay... I'm sorry. <laughs> when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, uh, I suppose, the first one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You see that? It's biblical. Jesus wants you to wash your feet whenever you go anywhere <laughs> in a public place. I'm sorry. I was talking about this at, my, at our Sunday swim prayer meeting earlier today and last week. Anyway, I'm sorry. She gave me, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. And she's wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, they're forgiven. She loves, she, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Powerful. We've got to see the wisdom in the story of how Jesus interacts once again with another social outcast. The whole town knew that she had lived a sinful lifestyle, probably a sexual and promiscuous one. But the way that Jesus saw her, Jesus did not see her old identity, which is based upon her sexual promiscuity. Jesus saw her new identity. And he treated her with love and dignity. What you'll notice is the Pharisees here only saw her old one. They could not get past the fact that she has this history. And it was so repulsive to them that they wanted her to stop touching Jesus. But here's, this, here's the thing that we as Christians, we need to keep in mind. When the gospel comes into someone's life, the gospel gives that person a new identity. Even after they get saved, if they live a promiscuous, backslidden life, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, when they return to Christ, the new identity still applies. Maybe they lived in fear and deception. That's why they lived that kind of lifestyle in the first place. But when they return home to the house of the father, the father does not tell the prodigal son, you dirty, thieving, ungrateful son. Yeah, you right. I should make you like one of my slaves. Here's a mop. Take the mop. Here's a rag. And here's some beat up sandals that I'm about to throw away. You can have it. Go clean the house. You no good, ungrateful son. The father doesn't do that at all. The prodigal son tries to return with this I'm sorry speech. Doesn't get to finish it. Because a father responds with this incredible love and compassion. Because when the father saw the son, what did the father see? Not an identity based on his promiscuous while living, but he saw his son's true identity. You are still my son. You see this ring? Put it on your finger because my sons wear these Super Bowl huge caliber rings. See that? That's my son. You see that ring? The fat ring with all them diamonds in it? That's my son. How could, Father, how can you... Look, your identity is not in this backslidden stage you had or in some sexual orientation that you're struggling with. When I see you, I see the new identity. I see you as my son. And through the blood of Christ, each one of us has been adopted as a child of God. 
We've, given, we've been given a new identity. And so when we reach out to those who are struggling with homosexuality, whether they're Christians or unchurched, we, we, we got to not let them get stuck in that identity and their sexual orientation. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's wisdom in that. You know, I'll be the, I'll say it outright. I don't think homosexuality is an identity. I may not be popular for saying that. If I said that in an American church, some people will walk out right now. I remember when I was at NYU, one of our alumni came to our uh, campus crusade meeting and he just said it very tactlessly. You know, homosexuality is, is just disgusting. It's an abomination. And uh, it was just like not even his main point. He just went off on this rant with this homo like hostility. And one of my friends from Texas, she was a, she was a friend that I met through America Online. <laughs> you know, she was searching for God, but she was struggling because a lot of her friends were, were gay or lesbian. She just straight up, she just walked out the room. She just walked out the room. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying it tactlessly. But let me say it still. I don't think homosexuality is an identity. You should not place your identity on a sexual orientation. In fact, if you really study what's happening, this is how Satan, this is Satan's strategy for gaining a stronghold in someone's life. Satan tempts us to sin. Then after you sin in that way, he accuses you of that identity. For example, he may tempt you to steal something that's not yours or to cheat someone. And then after you do it, he'll turn around and be like, you little thief, look at you. You hypocrite. Or he may tempt you to look at some lustful images. And the moment you do it, he'll be like, look at you, you loser. You, you, you're, you're such a bad Christian. You're nothing but a pervert. He tries to give you a, an identity. He sets you up. Makes you fall and then kicks you while you're down. Why does he do that? Because he knows that if he can get you to identify with those sin patterns, oh, you're in trouble. It's a lifetime of, of that sin that's going to come pouring out of you because you do what you think you are. And so if you think your identity is, I am gay, I am a lesbian, and I have other friends that are in the same kind of struggle to live a normal life and, and we get socially outcasted all the time. So there's this kind of camaraderie and intimacy that I have with this community. But look, this, this is who I am. This is who they are. And this is our identity. But look, I know that this may make a couple people angry. But if you do that with any other thing that the Bible calls sin, it will be completely ridiculous. I mean, for one thing, you don't have a group of heterosexuals saying, we are heterosexual. This is our identity. We got to stick together. <laughs> if we want the world to go on and procreate, we got to stick together, y'all. We don't, we, don't, we don't see that happening. Neither do you see a group of pedophiles. People who have a preference to sexually abuse children. And there are many. There are many in the Catholic Church, as you can see in the media. There are also many even in denominational churches. There are many even in Korea. There's a 
teacher at a Sri Lankan school that we're praying for because one of our alumni are there. And this teacher has been a teacher at a deaf school. And he's been sexually abusing these teenage boys for many years. And, and, the, and the administrator doesn't know how to confront it. And so they're dealing with that right now. There are so many, you know, when sexual deviations, you just continue without any self-control. And you just continue to do it. You just it just gets you harder. It, it hardens you. It desensitizes you. It's like, it's like a drug addict. You need something harder to get that high. And so they start going after more and more disgusting things like bestiality or pedophilia. But you don't see a group of people saying, I'm a pedophile. We got to stick together. We have to form a community and we got to guard our rights. We should have the right to have a legal union with the child. This is a loving, mutually edifying relationship. And no one should judge us for it because this is our this is our biological nature. I was born like this. Now, the reason why this is very, uh, uh, we have an aversion to this kind of example is because right now, society-wise, this is a very, very abominable thing to most people in society. But to God, God has made it clear that homosexuality is an abomination to him. And so we as God's people, we have, we have got to not allow people to just get an identity in their sexual orientation. Now, um, one thing, another wisdom I want to impart right now is we got to expand our definition of masculinity and feminine, femininity. I'll tell you right now, I'm going to struggle with that word, okay? I kept practicing it all night. I still couldn't say it. Uh, Listen up, many sensitive men are gay or are accused of being gay. Any sensitive men in here? Now, don't raise your hand. You're sensitive. You're sensitive. That's fine. Uh, They cry a lot. They have an unusual amount of empathy. They're just gifted that way. They talk with a bit of an attitude. But this sensitivity is not a sign of being gay. This is a sign of God's intelligent design. When God creates men, he does not create them with the same level of testosterone. Certain men have a lot of testosterone. And they're just like brute beasts. And it's got to be like, damn boy, get a, get a grip, calm down, you know. I remember when I baptized Sam Keel last year. And it came up out of that water. You know, there's too much testosterone in the system. He's like, ah! And then then that wasn't enough, so he hugged me and he picked me up. In God's intelligent design, he does not create all men with the same level of testosterone or estrogen. And so when there's different levels of testosterone and estrogen that God is the one who determines, he gives to certain men. Certain men are going to seem a little bit more sensitive. But we got to expand our idea of masculinity. I'm talking to not just the men, but also the women. Because some of the women, you would disqualify a man romantically just because he's a little bit sensitive. Oh, he's just so sensitive. You know, you know, I don't like guys like that. That's because your masculinity is too small because your God is too small. You don't think, 
your God can create a man like that. But what you don't know is a man who is quite sensitive is actually a man that could be very much, has a lot more courage than a man with just testosterone. Because remember, emotion is not weakness. It takes courage to be vulnerable. It takes courage to be in touch with your emotions. It takes courage to identify and have empathy for the emotions of others and the pain of others. You might be looking at a very strong man. But because your ideas of masculinity are being shaped by society and not by the Bible, not by your God, you might pass judgment on them. You know, this sensitivity is awesome. Because it makes men incredible leaders in the arts, in fashion, in counseling. You know, you get a guy who's just a big jock. He can't counsel nobody. <laughs> you need a guy who's sensitive. And I, I, used to, I used to love reading a, a blog called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. That's where I got my fashion tips from. Right? You want you know, some men that have no fashion sense whatsoever. I was one of them at one point. But praise the Lord, queer eye for the straight guy came in there. <laughs> On the other hand, there are many masculine women who are accused of being lesbian. They don't cry a lot. They tend to be athletic. They're rough like the boys. So they get called different names like tomboy. Other feminine women, they push the women, those kinds of women away and use all kinds of derogatory terms when they get into arguments. Unfortunately, establishing that person in a false identity. Why would you let your identity be established by someone who spoke to you out of anger? Or someone who just abused you and then accuses you? That's not the voice of the Lord. That's the voice of the devil. We must also expand our ideas of femininity. Femininity. We got to embrace God's diverse design. Amen. You know, women that are tough like that, they can make great spouses and mothers. You know, if I was going out onto the battlefield, I would want a woman like that next to me. (laughs) Sorry. But yeah, I mean, we need to get off of this very narrow view of what masculinity and femininity is. We've got to expand it. That's wisdom for you. If we can expand that, we will learn to embrace. Because some people are not gay. And I went to, on a mission trip in my freshman year at NYU to Kazakhstan. And there was a tall gentleman, a little bit heavy set, you know. And he was on the team. And he was very soft-spoken. He had, he had a very... Um, high-pitched voice and he had a little bit of attitude and he was very sensitive he cried a lot and I remember my small group leader went with me on that trip my small group leader you know wasn't particularly nice toward him now I'm not I don't want to speak bad about my small group leader because he was a good small group leader but he kind of encouraged me almost to look down on this guy but the thing was throughout the trip He was an amazing servant. He was an amazing leader on the team. And throughout the trip, I I just appreciated him more and more. And I swore he was gay. But the more I got to know him, I said, he's not gay. 
He's not gay at all. He's not struggling with homosexual thoughts at all. But he gets accused of that a lot of times. Can you imagine if you're just a little bit more sensitive as a guy? All your life, you're going to get completely, because homophobia is everywhere. You continue to get told, oh, you're gay, you're gay, oh, you're homo, oh, and all these derogatory terms. You know how hard it is to fight that off? We as a church, we got to be the opposing voice. It says, no, that's not who you are. I celebrate the way God made you. Can you take me shopping sometime? Let's go shopping together. What are you good at? I know, I know you're sensitive men. You got something you're good at. You know? Anyway, just using a little humor, but. Uh, there's some more PowerPoint slides. So I can't cover them because I'm out of time. So I'm, I'm just going to end with what I have here. But there's different questions that we got to ask as church leaders. And uh, some of them would be, how do you handle people that are privately struggling with homosexuality and are not practicing? And then you, how do you uh, handle people that come into the church that are privately struggling and practicing? How do you handle uh, gay couples and lesbian couples that walk through the doors, but they're secretly gay? How do you handle people that are openly gay? And how do you handle people that are straight up married? And in America, a lot of states, this is a problem. Gay couples are going into traditional churches and saying, I want you to accept us. And then if the pastor says, uh, I don't know how to deal with this, um, get out. <laughs> they bring lawsuits. And it's happening in school systems everywhere, but it's going to start to happen in churches as well. Because these hate crimes get categorized to assault the Christian view of homosexuality. You can criminalize the Christian view. So anything the church does is going to be scrutinized. So we got to do it intelligibly. And we got to do it with grace and love. Uh, if uh, they're, they're struggling with homosexuality, they want to serve in the church. Where can they serve? How much do you allow them to serve? Can they join your leadership? What if they're secretly struggling with it? What if they're openly struggling with it? You know, these are all these different questions that are on the PowerPoint. I'm not going to cover it right now. But these are questions that we got to ask ourselves as a church. And this is something that I think we're going to continue to answer as a process. Now, in Korea, you might not see it in your face. But let me tell you, I mean, a lot of different people, sociologists are saying it's on its way. Korea is just about five to ten years behind America. And so they think in ten years from now, this is going to be a huge issue in the Korean church. And the Korean church is not even remotely ready to deal with it. So everything's hidden right now. Uh, and uh, I want to close with a couple of words to those who are struggling with homosexuality. You know, Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he said, anything that we look to more than we look to Christ for our sense of acceptability, joy, significance, hope, and security is by definition our God. Something we adore, serve, and rely on with our whole life and heart. And so what Martin Luther was doing was he was redefining idolatry and saying that idolatry actually touches Christians a lot more than people think. Just because you don't go inside a temple and bow down to a statue does not mean you're not struggling with idolatry. When you look to any kind of thing for, more, for, for your sense of acceptability, joy, significance, hope, and security, and you rely and serve this thing with your whole life and heart, that by definition is your God. And so Tim Keller says this, a sure sign of the presence of idolatry 
is inordinate anxiety, like a lot of anxiety, anger, or discouragement when our idols are thwarted. So if we lose a good thing, it makes us sad. But if we lose an idol, it devastates us. And yeah, this, this, this message can go a million different ways. You know, if your parents' approval, not having it, devastates you that you can't even eat or sleep. If somebody that you like doesn't like you back and it, and it prevents you from being able to function. You got to examine your heart. Because there's a subtle form of idolatry that, that may have come in. And it could apply to achievement, your work, your career. You know, you study all these years to be a doctor and you don't, you get rejected from every medical school you apply to. And the only option you have left is the Caribbean. And you're like, I don't want to do the Caribbean. <laughs> I, those med school students, you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, it, it could be even church ministry can become your idol. You know, if I don't get the approval, if I don't preach a good sermon, I don't feel good about myself the rest of the week. You're put, lacing all your hopes and feelings of significance in your church ministry. No, you got to place it in Christ. Only Christ can hold up all those expectations. And then some. Jesus said, put those expectations on me. I am your Lord. I am the God who saves. I am the God who redeems. The God who restores. I got muscles you don't even know about. Put those expectations on me and stop putting in all these things. Because those, irash- those crazy amounts of expectation, it will crush the thing that you're, that you're putting the expectation on. You put that thing on your spouse, it will crush your spouse. You'll be constantly disillusioned and disappointed with your spouse. You got to place God at the throne of our hearts. And this can also, idols can be also a sexual orientation or preference. When good things are turned into ultimate things from where we derive our significance and joy, these things can become idols. So if you're struggling with homosexuality, I would challenge you to ask yourself, has my sense of acceptance, community, and belonging, which I get from my gay friends, has that become an idol? If I take a stand for Christ, And at the thought of losing that gay community and support, would that devastate me? Then that thing has become your idol. You say you're a Christian, but Christ is not on the throne of your heart. You say you're, you're headed in the direction of God's will, but Jesus ain't even on the steering wheel. And as Christians, there are two errors that we constantly can go off balance in. One is moralism. This is legalism, like a religious kind of spirit, which emphasizes truth without grace and claims that we must obey the truth to be saved and to be sanctified. It's all about obedience. You gotta obey. On the other hand, relativism or liberalism emphasizes grace without truth and claims that, you know, we're all God's children. God loves us all. We're all accepted and we each have to decide what's true for us. If there is indeed a God. A lot of Christians, they go from moralism to relativism. They struggle between these two sides. But we must never forget that the Bible describes Jesus in John 1.14 as being full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. 
And we as his people, we've got to represent him that way. You know, the moralist tends to see sex as dirty, as this dangerous temptation. And we must do everything to avoid it. The relativist, the, the relativist, the liberal, will say sex is merely a physical appetite. It's just natural. Stop suppressing it. Go, go fulfill these urges. But the gospel says something radically different. Tim Keller's quote. The gospel shows us that sexuality is supposed to reflect the self-giving of Christ. He gave himself completely without conditions. Consequently, we are not to seek intimacy while holding back the rest of our lives. You know, men who are like, I love you, baby. I love you. Come on, let's just do it. Come on, honey. Let me, you know, I'll bring some boys to men's CDs tonight. And, we, you know, you know, the guys who, who want to get into bed with you. But when it comes to every other area of their life, they hold it back. That's not a picture of Christ's love. That's a selfish, childish love. And for any man who's in a dating relationship or is engaged, and you engage in sexual behavior with your fiancé or your girlfriend, and you do it before the covenant of marriage, you're doing essentially the same thing. I haven't given it to you. I haven't given you my all yet. But forget Christ's love. Forget sex reflecting Christ's love. I just want sex. And all you do is reflect your selfishness and your lack of self-control and your immaturity. Sex is supposed to reflect the selfless love of Christ, the giving love of Christ. And when Christ gives, when he died on the cross, what did he give? Did he give us just 10%? He just gave us a little bit? Look, I'm, I'm very close to death here. That's good enough. Look, I'm, I've suffered enough. It's a lot of pain I went through, through y'all for y'all. Oh, that's good enough. All right, let's just pretend I died, all right? No. <laughs> Jesus gave it all. To the last dying breath, he gave his all. He said it was a self-giving love, a sacrificial love, a love that lays down his life for his friends. And sex is supposed to reflect that self-giving love, not just satisfy our urges. So when we give ourselves sexually, we are also to give ourselves legally, socially, personally. Sex is to be shared only in a totally committed permanent relationship of marriage that's the design of sex and so the moralist says sex is dirty god says no it's not sex is beautiful i created it it's my idea the relativist says oh it's just a physical appetite biological urge we should just you know just like we get hungry we should eat you know we have sexual desires we should go have sex god says no it's a particular design in which i want you to enjoy sex and it's only when two people give of themselves completely, just like my son gave of himself completely on the cross. You see, the reason why Satan attacks sex so much is because it mars the ability of the human race to see the amazing love of Christ. Because the more he can get you to mar sex, the more you have a twisted idea of what it means to give of yourself. What it means to have a sacrificial love for someone. But when we as men of God, we rise up and we reflect God's design. We point people to that selfless love of Christ. That's why 
the man in the relationship has such a crucial role. We're the head of the household, just as Christ is the head of the church. We have that leadership role. Men, if you say stop, the girl will stop most of the time. I mean, most of the time. <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> and so the moral, moralist sees homosexuals as, as dirty and sinful. And that's why they, it feeds the homophobia. The moralist sees them, the legalist sees them as dirty. Jesus, how could you let them touch your feet? That's the moralist. The relativist says, there's nothing wrong with homosexuals. Just let them be free. Let them just do their thing. There's just natural desires and urges. You're psychologically messing them up. Stop that. Right? But the gospel says, no. There's a design for sex. And it's to glorify Christ. Uh, now, I want to I um, end with a couple notes here. I'm sorry, I'm going so long. Look, I was committed to do 45 minutes. I can't, I can't get my clock up there. I think I went about an hour and 10. I'm just going to close with five more minutes, all right? It was better than last week. <laughs> or better than last week. But check it out. Uh, moralists tend to tell us to control our passions out of fear of punishment. This is a volition-based approach. It requires a lot of willpower. Relativists tell us to express ourselves and discover what feels right to us. This is an emotion-based approach. The gospel teaches us that the grace of God in Christ enables us to say no. It commands and enables us to say no to our, inord- uh, our sexual passions that are not pleasing to God. The gospel also prophesies that there will come a day when God will give you new desires. The closer you walk with him and the truth of God drops down into your heart, you will get new desires. It does not have to be like this for the rest of your life. God wants to change you from the inside out, not just your behavior. So I'm going to end with three lies. Three lies. My homosexual orientation is genetic. Just like Lady Gaga said, I was born this way. (laughs) So this is a lie. This is the lie. The truth, there's good news and bad news. The good news is you did not inherit a homosexual orientation. The bad news is, but you were born with a sin-inclined, sin-enslaved, fallen nature. That's why you're struggling so much. Not because you're genetically homosexual, but because you're genetically a sinner. You're born with this fallen nature. And that's the thing about sin. Sin tends to distort our view of God, the world, and ourselves. Your homosexuality is not a biological issue. It's a spiritual one. And once you repent and you draw near to Christ, you will begin to find freedom from your sin nature and victory over the passions that are currently enslaving you. That's the truth. The lie says... I cannot help it but feel these urges and passions. The gospel and the truth says, if you will walk in self-control and embrace the truth uh, that's in scripture, God will pour out his spirit upon you and will give you new desires. The lie says, my sexual orientation gives me my identity and my sense of significance and belonging. The truth says, your sexual orientation is not your identity. Your identity comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. The, leg, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community may give you a temporary sense of significance and belonging, but they cannot make it last. Only Christ can. He gives you the most fulfilling sense of significance and belonging because he's the one who designed you the way you are and he set you apart with a purpose. You know, I didn't address the transgender issue and I can't get into it too much. 
But, you know, you go to Thailand, you ever visit Thailand on tourism, uh, there are these young men called ladyboys. They, they look like women. I mean, they look like very attractive women. And tourists who are new to Thailand, you know, they oftentimes will go up, try to look for prostitution. And then they will find out that these are actually ladyboys. These are actually men dressed as women who've gotten certain surgical and medical changes. Maybe they can't afford to get a full sex change, or maybe they don't want one. And, and from there, what happens is some of these men will buy them anyway and then have homosexual relations with these ladyboys. But the thing that's so sad about the ladyboy thing in Highland is there's just no love for the ladyboys. Absolutely no love. Their families completely disown them. Society looks down upon them. And so the only place of belonging they can find is with other ladyboys. And a lot of times when they get bought out, they also get beaten very brutally, violently. Because the men who commit the homosexual acts with these ladyboys, they also hate the homosexual acts because of maybe their Christian background or whatever. They both enjoy it and then they hate it. And sometimes that leads to violence. So for the transgender, if you ever come across, and it may not be as common here, but it, as you minister out on the missions field, you may meet different people of the transgender community, people who've either gotten a sex change fully or partially. Here's my word of advice to you for that. Let them have their sense of dignity. Just like I talked about last week. If a person says, I want you to address me as a female, address them as a female. Don't say, look, you only got a partial sex change. You, there's no, you can still become a man. Look, you're, you're a man. God created you as a man. You need to just embrace that. No. If that's not where they're at, don't take them there. Just clothe them with dignity and love on them with grace and truth in a process. And perhaps they will want to change. Or perhaps it's too late and they just want to stay where they are. Either way, God can get glory in discipling those who have that kind of experience. Amen? Can you get a little bit more of my heart in this, on this issue? Right, let's pray. And yeah, we just close with the song of praise. You know, as I was preparing this message, I thought of the various people that I'm aware of that are struggling with homosexuality still, that are in our community, that are even on, on our leadership. And I just want to speak continual hope. I know that the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender community, they speak a certain gospel. They tell you this is who you are. This is biological. This is your identity. This is your community. This is your, where you need to belong. And I'm here to tell you that those are lies. Yes, they are compassionate. Yes, they're not necessarily evil, wicked, bad people. And yes, they provided you a sense of belonging and community. But if you really want to live out your, your Christian walk in grace and truth... Your whole expectation and worship has got to be in Christ alone. And Christ provides you with a different community that speaks a different gospel. But it's not a gospel that 
is fearful of the gay community. It's not a gospel that ostracizes and pushes away the gay community. But it's one that invites those who are broken, hurting, struggling with sin, or trying to get healing from their abuse. It's, it's a gospel that invites them to come to the feet of Jesus. Come to Jesus, and he'll give you a new identity. Continue to go to Jesus. He'll give you new desires. He will renew your mind. If you're in here and th- because of certain, you're quiet or you're surrounded by jocks all your life and you got continue to accuse of being gay, lesbian, all kinds of derogatory terms. I just want to break that off of you as you worship right now. I just want to break that off of you. May the Lord undo all those voices. Delete all those recordings and begin to give you a new meditation. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God delights in me. God delights in me just the way I am. Why don't we all stand to our feet right now? Let's stand.